slap onto my top. There I mean, it is. Wait, that's not. <laughs> Put the computer on top of your head. <laughs> All right. Hey guys, hello and welcome to Super Duper Stitious, the science podcast about paranormal stuff, and the comedy podcast about science, and the podcast podcast about <laughs> comedy. I don't know. Yeah. Stop making sense there. Um, uh, talking heads. But we're back, y'all. Like yeah. we are every week. That's right. And we're going to talk about more spooky stuff. That's right. We got more cool stories for you guys. This week's prompt, I believe, was family? strange Strangeness with family? Yeah. Well, Thursday is um, in the United States. It is Thanksgiving. And so it's a time when traditionally people get together with friends and family. Yeah. And I thought, hey, we come out on Thursdays. We'll be out on Thanksgiving Day. Let's have it be... Uh, um, family-oriented things. That's yeah. weird family stuff. Exactly. Should we, should we jump right in? or? Yeah, um, I will just touch on... So, um, Phantom of the Chicago update. Yes. There is one. Oh, please um, give. Kind of is one. So, the Phantom of the Chicago, if you haven't listened to episode two or you just hate us and don't feel like going <laughs> back and finding out what I'm talking about, <laughs> is a large, it's a, a multiple sightings all throughout 2017 of large humanoid flying bat creatures with glowing red eyes He's that are just terrorizing there. the skies of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, there is one that is kind of an update, but it also seems like just such far fetched bullshit that. Lay it on me anyway. Um, a winged goblin, quote unquote. <laughs> Has followed a Chicago family for forty-five plus years. Okay, <laughs> so it's like, are you? As soon as I saw the headline, I was like, "That's no." Then so they're just um, coming out with us now. I think they finally was like, "Wait, is this happening to other people?" Uh, no, it's happening to us we too. We can finally tell our story. I'll just read a little bit of it, and then I'll just gloss over the rest because it's mm-hmm. just such silliness. It's a shapeshifter, but I think its original form is about a seven-foot-tall creature with wings that span six feet or so. So it definitely can't fly. It has a uh, goblin-like face and ears with bat-like wings, but way more flexible. It's real dark brown, <laughs> almost black in color. It has red eyes that almost glow in the dark. Its wings fold all the way back around itself when it's flying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just completely touch each other yeah. top and bottom. <laughs> it claps at the top and bottom of its flight. <laughs> it has claw-like feet and very long fingers and arms. Uh, the arms are not connected to the wings. They are what? separate. Wings are more like on its back, like a bird. So this person uh. also hasn't seen a bird before. <laughs> They are on its back like a bird, huh? Like, <laughs> if anyone has, you know, if you've seen a bird, which I imagine this is all of our, our listeners have, conversation. yes, bird wings are on their sides. They come out of their shoulders because they are their forelimbs. Um, so it has a long tail and pointed at the end. It's extremely fast oh in this gosh. form. So it's uh, they're describing kind of a Balrog or something. I like that it um, has a long and pointed tail. Did they say it's extremely fast in this form? Yes, they said it's a shapeshifter. It's oh, a shapeshifter. of course. Other of forms course. It, it transforms into are a moth-like creature. Uh-huh. Uh, wait, I didn't actually read all these in detail because I just kind of dismissed them. Uh, it's closer to six feet tall with long teeth. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Another form it takes is a bat, but bigger. Uh, oh, three feet okay. in size with red eyes and black in color with long teeth. Again, with the long teeth. He loves these long teeth. It's not super fast in this form, but faster than a human being. <laughs> this is really fa- I mean, flying is going to be faster than a human, but sure. He's um, just describing Pokemon that he doesn't realize are Pokemon yet. <laughs> can also take on go- a goblin-like creature form, so a different goblin than the first one, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hands and wings are separate, gray and black in color with long teeth. <laughs> human-like hands but long claws and sharp talons <laughs> on its feet and it drools oh uh, red and brown with eyes three and a half foot tall slowest form however it's still as fast as a cat 
when it needs to move as fast as it can. I like I like too the idea of him being like it also takes a form of uh, indigestion uh, sometimes. <laughs> I have I've seen him at night. Yeah. I like it licks itself in this form. Oh, like it's cleaning its claws. Has a tail maybe two feet long. So they just describe it as living, like uh, they've lived in different homes all throughout the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. It, it follows them everywhere. It hates dogs. It perches up high to avoid being seen. It hides in the shadows, like it's stalking you, similar to a feline. It has an odor, almost like a musty or moss-like scent. Mm-hmm. Once you smell it, you never forget it. Oh my um, god. It's just, yeah, so it's just been following them for 45 ever. years, you said? <laughs> and yeah. And they've um, never taken a picture, I'm sure. Uh, example of an ac- incident which occurred on the Lake Michigan shoreline in North Indiana. I was about 10 years old, around 1977. We'd gone to visit my cousins and went fishing. We cleaned the fish at the lake and left the fish heads and scales on the riverbank. This thing, uh, this being flew down and ate the remains. My cousin said, as long as you gave it, uh, give it back, it won't bother you. Mm-hmm. It's seen it several times before. So the whole like, just extended family all were familiar with this goblin monster. They're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, if you're, if you're cleaning fish, just give it the, the, the other fish parts and it'll just leave you alone. So just like they have a that's system pretty, down for uh, this goblin creature. And that sustains it for the year, I guess, huh? Whenever they encounter it, they say, oh, Whenever if you, they, if you give it oh, its food, it won't, it won't just, hassle just you. Just feed it a little bit. Yeah. Well, And that is the only nice. update. That and Lon Strickler is releasing a book about the Phantom of the Chicago. Oh, what's he calling it? Um, I think it's... Let me He's see. releasing a book. He's releasing a book. Premature, friend. All right. This website is a disaster. I just want to know what the fuck the book is called. You don't have to get through my labyrinth if you want to know. <laughs> Answer yes. three riddles if you want to get to the next page. Where do bats hide when they're giants? How do you spell my name backwards? And just what is the title of my book? Page for book? I can't find it, and I just don't <laughs> care anymore. You know, Lon, <laughs> make your website better, dude. Yeah. So that's all I got for the fan of the Chicago this week. So let's uh, let's jump into some stories for Thanksgiving, shall sounds, we? Sounds great. Spooky Thanksgiving. I believe you're kicking us off this week, or 1897. Ooh, I think I think yelling the year might be a, a copyright infringement. 1890. So, <laughs> anyway, James Irving, a piano and organ seller for the Dominion Piano Company, married dressmaker Margaret Ann Heaviside in Liverpool. Margaret Ann Heaviside. Yes. Um, they had two children, Elsie and Gilbert, and lived pretty happily near Wavertree Botanic Gardens there in Liverpool. Hmm. But then World War One happened, and Irving's business fell apart. Okay. And in 1919, he decided to start a new life as a farmer on the Isle of Man. Mm. He bought <laughs> Dorlish Cashin, because farms and estates all had names back then, which was maybe cool or possibly stupid. I, I where, decided. So where is the Isle of Man? The Isle of Man is off the west coast of England, like over getting... It's in the Irish Sea, but it's closer oh. to England than it is to Ireland. My story will take place on the other side of England. This is well, kind of fun. about that? Kind of flanking Creepy it. shit happens all around England, apparently. Yeah. Carry on. So he, he bought, buys this um, farm. Bought a farm called Dorlish Cashin. Dorlish Cashin. Bless you. Elsie and Gilbert moved out to live on their own at this point, uh, leaving James Irving and Margaret alone in their serious fixer-upper farm. It was not in great shape at this oh. time. In 1918, they had another daughter, Voiry. Uh, Voiry, mm. I guess, is... Um, I looked it up. It's like the... I guess it's the evocative form of Moiry. Which oh. is the uh, Manx version of Mary. Manx being what you're referring to people from the Isle of Man. Like the um, oh, Manx cool. dialect, Manx Gaelic. Manx. Also, I will confess that I wasted a large amount of my time last night, not writing down spent, the story, spent. but tr- uh, trying to learn how to do a Manx accent. Oh. Um, Did you get anywhere with it? I don't think. It, I'm going to still do it, but it's not going to be good. Are you going to take this accent to the Manx? 
God. <clears throat> no, Jake, no. Voyer would prove to be an exceptionally intelligent girl, but given the family's isolated farm, their nearest neighbors lived like over a mile away, and their inescapable label of outsiders, they moved to the Isle of Man um, from the mainland, uh, she would have few friends and would mostly mm. stay at home, bored. Mm-hmm. On September 13th, 1931, the family started to hear some sounds behind the walls. Specifically, they heard scratching, growling, and eventually even what sounded like a voice coming from inside the wall. What? James figured it was a rat or something in the walls and tried to get rid of it, setting traps and banging on the walls and stuff, just hoping that something would make it just leave. Get out of here, rat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In the coming days, it would uh, would sound more and more varied, sometimes like a dog and eventually even like a human baby. Ugh. Exasperated, James even tried growling at the wall one time, and the thing inside just growled right back at him. I would punch a hole in the wall or something, man. <laughs> Freak that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, so, pretty damn awful sounds coming from their walls. Um, after a while, it started to make the sound of whatever animal someone in the house suggested. So, like, if you said cat, it would make cat sounds. If you said dog, it would start sounding like a dog, etc. It um, would just imitate whatever whatever you were saying it would do. For a short while, the thing would scare the family shitless with satanic laughter. Uh-huh. It's just really, really awful. <laughs> uh, Vary decided to test it at one point and started reciting some nursery rhymes, only to find that the thing in the wall would repeat them back to her. What? Yeah. Uh, eventually, it started speaking to the family directly, not just making sounds or repeating stuff. It had a high, squeaky voice and a Manx accent. Uh, once it had reached this point, it finally introduced itself as Jeff. Jeff. G E F. So Jeff would variously describe himself as an earthbound spirit, or okay. in one case, uh, if I can, they got to do this. In one case, he said, "I am the fifth dimension. I am the eighth wonder of the world." <laughs> Jeff I, sounds like a goofball. <laughs> Yeah, Manx, the best I could find is the Manx accent sounds kind of like a cross between like a northern accent and a west shore accent, and hey, I don't think I did either beats of me. those just then. Yeah, if any of our listeners can uh, send in a if, correct... If we have any listeners on the Isle of Man, yeah, please, please record your voice and send us an mp3 at uh, yeah. contact at superduperstitious.com. Uh, but, but, Jeff, if you're listening, please do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's most notable description of himself was as a, quote, marsh mongoose. Okay. <laughs> okay. He said that he was, quote, a little extra, extra clever mongoose, born in 1852 in New <sighs> Delhi, who was brought to the Isle of Man at some point by a neighbor to catch mice. All right. And now he was just talking to the Irvings. This took such a pleasant turn all of a sudden. <laughs> the sources for this, this all comes from a, um, <laughs> a book review called I Am the Fifth Dimension by B. Wilson. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a review of a book by Christopher Joseph, Joseph, just. I'm not really sure. I how believe it's J O S I F F E. Oh, th- this reminds me actually of mm. last week. I thought of it afterward, but I um from my story last week, I probably mispronounced every single name and place that we mentioned. But one in particular, um, the woman with the missing body parts. Mm-hmm. I pronounced her last name uh, Dubinina, and I realized over the weekend it was probably Dubinina. Like think of like oh. Anna Karenina, like Russian. It's probably see. I was getting so bothered by that all week. I was thinking about it every <laughs> single day. I'm like, I wonder if losing sleep Dubinina rather than Dubinina. <laughs> anyway, I'm bad at names, and that's the whole thing. Christopher <laughs> Joseph will say his book is called Jeff! Exclamation point. 
The strange tale of an extra special talking mongoose. This is so goofy. Isn't it? <laughs> so any quotes I use here that aren't direct quotes from the time, like from the actual people involved, all right. will be quotes from um, B. Wilson's review. Okay. Uh, the story and all the source material, i.e. the review, were recommended and given to me by retired UNH Manchester professor of European history, John Cerullo. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. I'm also supplementing some of this with an article from the Creepy Corner column of <laughs> XO Jane, is that how you say that? By Louise Hung, entitled Jeff the Strangely Spooky Talking Mongoose, which will be linked in the description. Wow, all right. So, back to Jeff. Let's get back to Jeff, yeah. <laughs> At first, he appeared to them as a sort of malevolent entity. Uh-huh. A kind of man weasel who frightened the family. Mm-hmm. He would badger the family, sometimes with unpleasant hey, but... Don't con- you mean he would weasel the family? <laughs> I, I figured that wouldn't get by you. Sometimes with unpleasant but comparatively innocuous stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're kind to me, I will bring you good luck. If you are not kind, I shall kill all your poultry. I can get them wherever you put them. Oh, man. Sometimes you take a more insulting tone, telling James as he sat down with a newspaper to... Read it out, you fat-headed gnome. <laughs> Other times his words be more threatening. I am not evil. I could be if I wanted. You don't know what damage or harm I could do if I were roused. I could kill you all, but I won't. All right. Yeah. This guy. He took a particular liking to Voiry. No one was permitted to see Jeff directly except Voiry, which hmm. is maybe just as well given his description of himself. I am a freak. I have hands and I have feet. If you saw me, you'd faint. You'd be petrified, mummified, turned into a stone or a pillar of salt. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He wanted to be wherever Voiry was, which scared her quite a bit. Right. Uh, one night, she came to James and Margaret's room all freaked out, wanting to sleep with her parents that night for fear of Jeff getting to her. Ugh. Jeff immediately realized what was up and said, I'll follow her wherever you put her, and began attempting to break into the room. Oh, uh, my. Rather than sort of like scratching or maybe even banging you'd expect from a mongoose slash weasel slash Mustelid in general. Uh, he made the door buckle, quote, as though some terrific force were thrusting against it. Jeez. So, really, really terrifying. <laughs> on this, other occasions. Wow. Go, yeah, go but, on. It just, uh, it still all seems like some kind of drunken story. It's bizarre, but it's, it keeps. Carry going. on. Yeah, no, carry on. On other occasions, quote, shrill screams accompanied by terrific knocking, loud bangs emanated from all parts of the house in quick succession as if the perpetrator moved with lightning speed. But Jeff's relationship with the family warmed significantly over time. Yeah. So the threats would instead become general joking around. He still used a lot of coarse language around some people. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff. He'd still swear and stuff, but his demeanor became more clearly lighthearted and the family stopped being afraid of him. (laughs) Are Uh, you going to drink that fucking coffee? Uh, Jeff would bring the Irving's <laughs> gifts, kind of like a cat might do. Uh, but Ugh. instead of an occasional mouse or something, he would leave an entire goddamn rabbit for them. Oh, okay. uh, Supposedly strangled with his own forepaws. Mm-hmm. He would leave a total of around like 50 rabbits for them over the years. Wow. So he did this a lot. Thanks, Jeff. The family, for their part, started leaving food out for Jeff each night. They tried leaving a lot of the different things that would make sense to feed a mongoose, but he rejected a lot of it. They eventually settled on the things they found out he liked, which were chocolate, cookies, sausage, and bacon. <laughs> Quote, he always leaves the fat part. Okay. So he likes lean bacon. Nice. Uh, the Irvings learned early on that Jeff could overhear them anywhere in the house and yard, but this skill would quickly become a source of amusement as he began regaling them with gossip from around town and jokes and stuff. So he would supposedly follow them into town when they went into town, running just out of sight on the other side of the hedge. Okay. So you never really see him. It wasn't long before news of Jeff the Talking Mongoose 
got out and began to spread. All right. Uh, locals would come by and want to witness Jeff's powers, but he did not like outsiders. Mm-hmm. In some cases, he would curse at or insult visitors, quote, clear to the devil, we don't want you here. <laughs> In other cases, he would threaten them, but he would mostly just make himself scarce when people came looking for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Manchester Daily Dispatch was the first newspaper to report on Jeff in January of 1932. A reporter who visited Dorlish Cashin heard, quote, a voice which I should never have imagined could issue from a human throat. Whoa. Uh, the Irving said, oh, yeah, no, it's a friggin' weasel stoke there <laughs> thing. Like, but, like, it talks and sings and occasionally offers betting tips. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Weird as this was, the reporter concluded that they were, quote, sane, honest, and responsible folk and not likely to indulge in a difficult, long, drawn-out, and unprofitable joke to make themselves the talk of the world. Right. Because they weren't, like, looking to um, to monetize this in any way. They were Interesting. Just people like, hey, this is a weird thing. Like, yeah, come check it out. Yeah, come check this weird shit out. Uh, James insisted that what was happening in the house was purely the work of a flesh-and-blood animal and nothing supernatural. Hmm. They were, quote, no spooks here. Jeff was a yellowish mustelid, so uh, for the listeners, that is a mustelidae, is the family of mammals that are things like yeah, weasels, stoats, Martins. Uh, minks, all those types of things. Right. So a yellowish one of those with a rat-like body, quote, Ugh. a long bushy tail, and uh, three yellow fingers on each of his doll-sized hands. Do we have a picture or an illustration uh, or we anything? We do have, so... Um, yeah, let me finish this. Three first. yellowish fingers. Yeah, he, he was overall yellowish, but he had three fingers on each hand. Like human fingers? Where I recall that his hands felt cold and hard to the touch. He was like a weird, freakish proto-Mickey Mouse somehow. <laughs> yeah. So um, here is a sketch of what he was believed to look like. Aw. He's got like a squirrel. Goofy as hell. Only, yeah, kind of squirrel-ish. Cause people he's got some big old eyelashes or eyebrows or something. I think he has a huge eyebrows. I don't know. Wow. We'll post this picture. Don't worry. Jeff has got some uh, serious brows. Yes. So uh, that was generally what he looked like and stuff. I heard that each of his three fingers were middle fingers. <laughs> yeah, he was always looking people <laughs> off. Yeah. <laughs> so no one was allowed to see or touch Jeff except for Voiry. Mm-hmm. So he would like let her hold one of his little hands through the hole in the wall or something. He would always stay out of sight. What a creep. A number of self-proclaimed psychic investigators became interested in this whole Jeff situation. But of course. Uh, one in particular, his name was Harry Price. He was a big skeptic of all this stuff. So he did his own little investigation of of Darlish Cashin and the Irvings. Right. And concluded that it was all the doing of Voyery. She was making it all up. Uh-huh. She was making the voices and stuff. That was um, my suspicion as well. And so the people would go on to say, oh, yeah, like, so she didn't really have any friends at school. Right. But people would, years later, after the fact, say, oh, yeah, no, I remember her, like, she'd be walking around and she was really good at ventriloquism and Ooh. she could throw her voice and things like that. So it's like, well, maybe, like, that, that could explain it, but it's also convenient, like, retconning of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Now, some specific um, uh, observations that Price listed as some of the ways that Jeff resembled Voiry. Mm-hmm. Quote, Jeff likes biscuits, cakes, and sweets. So do young girls. <laughs> Jeff is interested in motor cars and airplanes. So is Voiry. Jeff roams around the countryside watching parties of workmen att- attending various local gatherings consonant with what we know of Voiry. Hmm. Jeff's humor, Jeff's wisecracks, Jeff's tantrums, Jeff's affections. All have the quality. <laughs> Jeff's weasel-like body. <laughs> Jeff's, <laughs> Jeff's three fingers on each hand. <laughs> Jeff's habit of killing rabbits. Actually, I, I was gonna, I was joking about that, but actually, apparently, Voiry was a fearless rabbit hunter. Oh wow! So yeah. it was okay. Go it, on. Yeah. It seems like um, I'll have the quality of raw adolescence. Right. The thing about it was that the family was not like no one who actually interviewed the Irvings 
believed that uh, like James or Margaret were perpetuating a hoax. It didn't seem like they were putting people on it. It did seem like they genuinely believed it. Right. And if it was in fact worry, they were either buying it or right. playing along. But they, um, no one seemed convinced that they would be making this shit up. Everyone, no one thought they were crazy. Right. Including the investigators and. Uh, like I said, they had that quote from the reporter saying they're all of sound mind, sane, honest, and responsible folk, not likely to indulge in an unprofitable joke, which it makes, yes, like there, there's no real reason for them to be making this shit up. Right. Unless it's the daughter doing it and everyone is kind of playing along or whatever the case may be. Um, another investigator was very, very excited to <laughs> hopefully meet Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Nandor Fodor. <laughs> Um, my goodness. Nandor Fodor, I'm not totally positive. I'm pretty sure that's a, uh, oh my God, what's the name? I think he was a member of the of the band in the Mos Eisley Cantina. In the Cantina, yeah, exactly. Um, damn, what is the name of the band? That was going to bug me now. Oh, wait. Figuring uh, down in the modal nodes. There um, it is. Is the band, okay. We'll piece back together that <laughs> shattered vase of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Fodor. Wait, kept, Fodor. He, he wrote a letter to Mrs. Irving. Assuring her that Fodor, Fodor, Fodor. I can't stop. I get a found it now. I don't know how I didn't think of that until you mentioned it. But <laughs> he, he um, assured her if he could stay for oh just boy. a week, he would pay her five pounds for a week's board. Required nothing in return but some vegetables boiled in water for ten minutes. He was a vegetarian. Apparently so. He also wrote a letter to Jeff telling him that he mm-hmm. was, quote, the cleverest thing far and wide and promised to bring him chocolate and biscuits. Uh, what a <laughs> um, suck up. So he stayed for a week. Fuck all happened. <laughs> he was very disappointed. But, and again, he was there to try and do, like, uh, um, to discover the truth of this whole story. Mm-hmm. And he got there and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And he left being almost more convinced that Jeff does exist. Wow. Um, he's saying, like, all probabilities are against it, but all the evidence is for it. That's what he said. Because it seemed like all the the things happening in the house, all the reports, like, he was saying it just seems like, yeah, there's a a big mongoose in the walls. This photo guy just wanted to believe. He was a a proto-molder. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He wrote a letter afterward to Jeff. Dear Jeff, I'm very disappointed that you did not speak to me during the whole week which I spent here. I came from a long way and took a lot of trouble in collecting all your clever sayings. I believe you to be a very good and generous mongoose. I brought you chocolates and biscuits, and I would have been very happy if you'd done something for me. Oh, I like this little letter of reproach here. But it's also like, it's not even passive aggressive. It's just like, oh, yeah. I brought you stuff. I'm, I'm sad. I'm let down, Jeff. Yeah. I can't lie. But I'm still appreciative of you, and I want to hold you as a friend. Goodbye. <laughs> yes. No hard feelings, Jeff. Just wish yeah. this could have worked out. <laughs> Maybe this next could time, be us, but you play in. Yeah, so people didn't believe this to be really... In general, people are like, oh, yeah, it's got to be a hoax. But people who actually like went there and met them and stuff... Like, right. Yeah, Price did think that it wasn't real, but they no one thought them to be insane or anything. Right. Um, like an old friend of a businessman named Charles Morrison, who's a friend of the Irvings, he visited, and Jeff was supposed to not really like outsiders, but this was a family right. friend, and so when right. he visited, he would um, you know, he would address him to the walls as Charlie, Charlie, Chuck, 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 and so uh, Morrison, yeah, he experienced Jeff, thought he was real. He he would say, "Quote: I am no crank. Jeff? I'm a businessman." I have a most loathsome aversion against claptrap, so-called spiritualism. Extraordinary things do happen, and they have to be solved. One thing certain about this matter, I repeat, it is no fake. Oh. I have knocked about the world, both here and in America, and I regard myself as a man of the world. I have seen and gone through a whole lot, and I am not to be kidded so easily. Hmm. So, if it was indeed a hoax perpetuated by Voiry, it was a pretty damn good one. It is. It's true. 
10 years this would go on to jeff would be talking to folks for 10 years only when voyeur was around though i'm imagining uh well she never left the house really she just uh, kind of stuck, stuck, uh, stuck around all right but after some time jeff stopped talking uh, in that time voyeur had moved out uh-huh. Yeah, at some point in there, she was gone, and Jeff stopped mean, making appearances. Because he follows her, of course. Yeah, he favored her most of all, right. so if she was gone, he would have no reason to, to talk to anyone anymore. Mm-hmm. He was her favorite. Or she was him. Yeah, that's the more convenient um, option. Eventually, James died, uh, and so <laughs> Margaret had a hard it time happens. selling the house because no one wanted to buy Dorlish Cashin if it was, they all believed it to be haunted. Right. It's like, oh, it's haunted by this weird Jeff thing. Right. <laughs> and um, she's like, no, it's not haunted. It was just a freaking weasel. It's fine. But wait, I heard Jeff Dunham was there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we were talking about ventriloquism. Oh, oh God, yeah. Uh, when she finally was able to sell the house, uh, the new owner lived there for a while. He put out some traps, and he caught a huge, yellowish, weasel-like creature. No fucking way. Yeah. He did not, as far as I know, take any photos of this creature, but it was just a big weasel thing. He didn't hear, he heard no sounds when he lived there, <laughs> no voices, but he caught this great big yellow mustelid creature with a bushy mm-hmm. tail. Whoa. And um, so people were like, huh, so maybe there was something living there? Interesting. Yeah, Probably cool. it was not talking to the family. Because, no, come indeed. <laughs> but it was something... I mean, it could have been like that there was some creature there and then also they apl- supplied it with its own voice through right. yeah, Voiree throwing her voice and mm-hmm. and uh, ventriloquism, all that jazz. And the question then becomes, you know, what was the point behind all this? If mm-hmm. it was, in mm-hmm. fact, a hoax, which it had to have been because, come on, right. talking mongoose. Yeah, that's uh, insane. What, really, like, what was the goal behind this? I mean, the biggest thing that makes sense, Voiree was a really smart young lady and didn't have any friends and she was bored at home with her parents so it's entertaining as hell exactly it's something and so it's quite possible that it was something that wasn't really meant to get out of the house but people just she like, was like about it oh and so, crap now i and, gotta and keep this freaking act up yeah i had like okay do i do i come out and say oh i made it up or right. get embarrassed or do i just kind of how far double can I down? This motherfucker? yeah and doubling down seemed to work because people kept believing it it was a really good act so it's uh, pretty cool. It is. And it's just so strange. But also, like, there are aspects of it, too, because like, people would ask her about it later. She's like, oh, just leave me alone with this frigging Jeff thing. I don't <laughs> yeah. The last word she had on it when just when people talked to her about it was, um, she's like, yeah, no, it's like, no, there was no no making things up. There was this weasel in our house, this mongoose, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just wish she would have left us alone. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Because you think also, like, the initial, like, if it was just, like, this fun interaction with the family, then, okay, that's a fun thing for her to do. But initially, it was something really scary. Like, but she was 12 when it started. Yeah, wow. And also, the idea of a 12-year-old to be that good at ventriloquism it's is true, pretty right? impressive. And to, like, have a chance to practice that when no one was around, perhaps, you know? Because yeah. it sounds like when it started, it started strong and yeah. crazy. And uh, it was something like it sounded like the, the knocks and scratches inside the wall. Right. Like How do you pull that room, off? That's something I don't know. You can't throw your voice and make it sound like a scratch. Yeah, exactly. Knocks. Yeah. So oh, there scratch, are definitely scratch, still, scratch. there's still aspects of the story <laughs> that are not fully explained. But in general, right. it's just a really weird, kooky thing Man. I had never heard of. And I'm now glad to know about. That is super cool. Man. That so that is, is really a story strange. of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Holy moly. Well... Dang, my story is going to take this room that is now full of joy and laughter and bring it down to a spooky, mysterious place. Perfect. I got to say, I always get pretty psyched for Thanksgiving. It's generally, generally, can't talk anymore. We got this mic in the, oh, damn it. The mic is going to (laughs) be in front of me when I'm trying to read. (laughs) 
as I was saying, <laughs> I love me some Thanksgiving, Jake. I love it. It's pretty great. I it's mean, gener- it's a holiday all about food. You can't lose. You can't lose. And it's like right around this time of year in New England that I typically remember. I'm only about a third of the way or so through the uh, annual time of darkness and cold. <laughs> and I feel like Thanksgiving has always been there to ask me how it's going, <laughs> to give me a hug and a beer, <laughs> and to then winkingly remind me that my pal Christmas is on its way too Aww. and uh i have a pretty amicable time catching up with my family and uh yeah you know the whole experience leaves me toasty and glad <laughs> um but that's just me <laughs> i think it was last year was the first time and i eat a lot of thanksgiving last year was the first time that i ate so much that i was scared <laughs> <laughs> mom help me i, I finished eating because you know how it takes a little while for your body to catch up with how full you actually are and I had eat real quick. And I didn't eat that fast, but I, enough that I was sitting there. I was like, oh, oh, no. Oh, damn. This can't fit in my body. Yeah. It and is. So I, went, I, had, like, I ended up like going to the bathroom and just like unbuttoning my pants and just like being there, like scared about what was about to happen. To me. <laughs> Nothing ended up. I just had to just recover for a while, kind of at a 45 degree angle. Get the food sweats. <laughs> I think I had to wait for things to rearrange themselves in my stomach. And that's okay. <laughs> but I uh, do those like. Uh, competitive eating moves yes but i know too that for a lot of folks the holidays can be uncomfortable often for valid and very understandable reasons um suppose for example your family just talks to a mongoose in the walls all the yeah time. exactly goddamn jeff is always talking to you interrupting dinner and you know i feel like there may be a period during the holidays or at least during thanksgiving that some people start to wish some members of their family would just up and vanish. I have a bad feeling where this is going. In the spirit of that sentiment <laughs> that uh, I have for you, the case of the Goddard family disappearance. Oh, boy. It's a story that sounds like a penny dreadful to me from like the turn of the 20th century, but it begins instead in the late summer of 1999, a.k.a. the year The Matrix came out. <laughs> <laughs> What else do we know that you're for? Yeah, exactly. Anything, I mean, really. <laughs> People are like, 1997, 1998, The Matrix came out in 2000. <laughs> Our tale takes place along the northwestern coast of France, or really the northern shore, so Normandy, essentially. Okay. And among the Channel Islands between France and England. So we're moving to the opposite side of the island, if you will. All right. So I will simply read the the tale to you and uh interrupt me as we go as you like let me interrupt you first what year was this this is 1999 the year of the matrix all came right out. the whole conversation we just had cool okay I forgot. <laughs> sorry start over it might be a glitch in the matrix <laughs> <laughs> wait it is a glitch in the matrix <laughs> no, another me walks in the front door <laughs> yeah i'm ready to record the podcast what's going on here um all right so monday august 30th 1999 Yves Godard, a 43-year-old doctor and acupuncturist, sees his patients for the last time at his practice in Cane. I may be saying that wrong. A major city near France's northern coast. How is it spelled? Uh, C-A-E-N. C-A-E-N? I don't fucking know. Uh, the next day, he cancels all of his consult- consultations, wraps up some loose ends at his practice, and takes his kids, Camille, who's six years old, and Marius, who's four, fishing in some ponds in Plancare, uh, Plancare, I should say. This is going to be a lot of me mispronouncing <laughs> shit. 
We are um, quickly proving ourselves to have a very limited expertise, and that expertise really is just science. I could try to read this all in a Manx accent or whatever, <laughs> too. <laughs> so they're roughly 16 kilometers to the west of Ken. Two days later, on September 1st, he leaves from the port of St. Malo, um, about two hours southwest of Ken, on board um, basically a, a roughly nine-meter sailing boat named the Nick. His children are on board, but his wife, Marie France, is not. And he tells the owner of the Nick that he wants to go on a cruise as far as Perot-Girac, um, which is another coastal town located a further, roughly two hours west by car along the northern coast. Okay. So he's planning to sail west, and the owner's like, cool, man, take, take your time. And he expects to return on the 5th of September. Records later show that he bought cleaning products and rags in St. Malo before setting sail, hmm. but that he left these in his van, which he had parked at the uh, at the port. So he was going to clean the ship or the <laughs> boat during the cruise and then forgot. Perhaps, yeah. He just left that stuff in his van, it seems. So the next day, September 2nd, French customs officers inspect the Nick um, between uh, Cap Derquet? Derquet? And uh, Cap Durkey. Frehel, uh, Durkey, yeah, <laughs> Cap Turkey, um, <laughs> <laughs> about a third of the way or so to Perogirek. It's a routine and relatively uneventful inspection, and the officers notice one of the children sleeping inside the boat. Um, however, one of the customs officers is intrigued by uh, Godard's behavior and later has to double check his story with the owner of the Nick back in St. Malo. So something already was kind of like making these officers go like, what's going on here? This is weird. So the boat is seen to proceed on its voyage west without using the motor once the wind picks up. For the next few days, uh, Godard's boat remains near the Bay of Brehek. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, (laughs) but B-R-E-H-E-C, between Plua and Pluzek, a little more than halfway to Perot-Girec. That's a lot of French names. Several witnesses see the boat between the 2nd and the 5th of September, sort of just a sea, and variously coming to shore. Um, among the witnesses is a waffle vendor in the port who would later formally testify that Godard and his children had come to buy waffles from her on the 3rd of September. Okay. The next day, the Nick is spotted by a pair of walkers near the Point de Minard in Pluzec and is apparently abandoned by this point. Huh. Things only get stranger from here, my friend. Oh, was it already a ghost ship? It's already a ghost ship. Just it has some waffles. Flipped around, the thing is gone and abandoned, huh. apparently. No more waffles for them. The Nick's small pneumatic dinghy is recovered by a fishing boat on September 5th. One of two, I will mention as well. Okay, so one of the boats is gone, one is not. Right. But the main ship is unaccounted for at this point, the Nick. September 5th, so this is the day that he was supposed to have returned with his kids to Mm. St. Malo. Uh, The dinghy appears to have been abandoned 30 nautical miles from the Ile de Bats, which is a small island several kilometers west of Perogurek. Basically, to put it in perspective, people never even see them reach the place they were saying they were going to go. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the dinghy from this boat, just a day or two after they were last seen, shows up 30 miles further west even than the town they were headed. Jeez. On an island, no less. Hmm. A jacket is found inside the dinghy, along with a checkbook in the name of Yves Godard. Okay. 
intrigued, the Maritime Gendarmerie, which is like the saucy, fancy French Coast Guard, (laughs) (laughs) opened an official investigation into the disappearance. So now it's like a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. By September 7th, neither Dr. Goddard nor his children have returned to St. Malo. So, investigators search his parked Volkswagen camper, still at the port, and find significant traces of blood and doses of morphine inside. Whoa. It gets even weirder. <laughs> so, the investigation takes on more urgency at this point, as one <laughs> investigation natu- naturally would, right? <laughs> we found some blood. Uh, is this probably fine? He turned into blood. The kids turned into morphine. We figured it out. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> the boat is the van. We're done. <laughs> Uh, the next day, so this is just, again, three days after they were supposed to get back, September 8th, and just a week from the original departure, investigators search the Godard family home in Juvigny, where they find additional significant traces of blood in the bathroom, the living room, and the parents' bedroom. And so with this evidence, two Who days... still had that much blood left anyway? Yeah, for real. <laughs> See, the problem was they left all their blood at home. <laughs> They just went out there without blood in their body. (laughs) So a judicial murder investigation is officially open. Shit just got real, basically. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Goddard is the obvious prime suspect and now the target of an international arrest warrant. Four days later, on September 16th, we're still in 1999, the year The Matrix came out, (laughs) the blood found in Dr. Goddard's van is identified as being that of Marie France. Okay. His wife. Who no one had seen since the 31st of August. So timeline-wise, would that mean that he would have had to kill her before going on the cruise? Yes, indeed. If if that had indeed been the case. Gotcha. If he's the murderer, she would have had to have been killed, like, say, August 31st. Gotcha. Maybe September 1st. A massive search effort for Marie is undertaken, but is fruitless. Hmm. So during the same day, so we're still September 16th here, Amateur sailors off this the still co- the year that the Matrix came still out? the year the Matrix came out. Okay. Amateur sailors off the coast of the Channel Islands of Guernsey and Arigny find a life jacket belonging to the Nick. So, hmm. the Channel Islands are a fair distance north of Normandy. Hmm. Um, a week later, on September twenty third, the Nick's inflatable survival raft is recovered, half deflated. On a beach at Lime Bay in Dorset, England, Jeez. 126 miles to the north, entirely across the English Channel. Wow. Strangely, critical components had been removed from the raft, including the raft's canopy, uh, uh, canvas canopy, which apparently had been cut off, Wow. and the emergency inflation device, which is critical to the raft's seafaring integrity, that had also been detached for some reason. Huh. And the raft was just sitting there on the coast, all the frickin' way up 126 miles north. It sounds all, like the raft was all sabotaged, but still floated and made its way all the way to England? Jeez. Right. What the hell? French investigators are leaning towards this being a murder case, where Godard has murdered his wife and fled. But these latest discoveries only kind of confound things for the investigators. And further, according to experts at the French Naval Hydrographic and Oceanographic Service, it would have been basically impossible for the life jacket and the survival raft to have been found at those locations as a result of ocean currents alone. Okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense as far as randomly dispersing themselves across the water and adding in the same, okay. Right, they're like, they would have had to have been there deliberately, like put there, scattered. 
And furthermore, according to the um, inflatable dinghy's manufacturer, the raft could only have remained inflated for 72 hours after its inflation device was removed. Okay. And so, you know, this was a week after that previous set of discoveries of the life jacket. So we're talking within the last three days, the raft would have had to have been, would have had to have arrived there. So sometime between yeah. September 20th and 23rd. A period of tense quiet passes. And then on January 16th, 2000. Now it's the uh, millennium. This is the millennium, indeed. Yeah, we've moved into the millennium. Um, this is now four months after the initial disappearance of the Goddard family. A canvas bag comes up in a fisherman's trawling net off the coast of the Ile de Bats, which is where the pneumatic dinghy had been found. Mm -hmm. Within the bag are numerous personal effects belonging to all the members of the family. Clothes, Eve's and Marie France's um, driving licenses, hmm. the couple's vehicle's uh, insurance documents. The cars themselves. The cars themselves. <laughs> um, checkbooks. The entire contents of uh, Marie France's handbag. How many checkbooks do they have? They had a shitload of checkbooks, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> And don't forget, these are checkbooks, C-H-E-Q-U-E. <laughs> so they're especially fancy. Yes. Um, binoculars and a hammer. Uh, what? Which is just like a ghoulish additional detail. <laughs> yes. It's like either ghoulish or comical, depending on how you look at it. Like, oh, this, this is all I need now. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Make sure I can uh, pay for things without having cash and uh, hammer stuff. <laughs> I like, too, that the way this was originally written, it was the entire contents of Marie France Godard's handbag, binoculars, and a hammer. And if you remove the commas, it's just that the contents of her handbag were binoculars <laughs> and a hammer. <laughs> I can never leave house without them. So six months later, we're now in June, um, on the 6th, a seashell harvester's boat casts its net along the bed of St. Briac... <laughs> I feel like my mouth just broke. <laughs> B-R-I-E-U-C. I can't even understand letters at this point. Go for it. Um, off the coast of Erki. Oh, God. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> okay, next time we got to plan in advance. Only one of us can choose stuff we don't know how to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, basically, they're just about an hour west of good, the original departure port of St. Malo. Okay. So we're relatively close to where this all began. Okay. They cast the net, and in the middle of the night, as they're dredging for shells for whatever reason, they're doing this at night. Um, night shells. Night shells. <laughs> You're talking to one right now, my friend. <laughs> uh, the dredger brings up a fragment of a human skull. Oh, my God. Which the fisherman, perhaps unsure of what to do with a fragment of a human skull, throws back into the water. <laughs> like, this is not what yeah, I was looking for. <laughs> these are not these shells I want. <laughs> Four hours later, as the fisherman sorts through his dredger's additional hauls, he sees in the lamplight an entire human skull Jeez. among the shells. He brings this find to authorities, and DNA analysis reveals that it is the skull of Camille, oh, Dr. Goddard's six-year-old daughter. Jeez. So, scientific analysts at the French Research Institute for Exploitation of the Sea, which is a hilarious research, <laughs> they're not even fucking around. They're like, we're exploiting that bitch. We're taking that thing to task. They conclude that the skull had been at this location since at least February of 2000. Okay. So, it seems to corroborate uh, an active theory at the time that Nick sank, either accidentally or intentionally, 
Uh, that the Nick sank. I'm talking about Nick. <laughs> like, remember, wait, remember the character Nick? Nick? The Nick sank, um, either accidentally or intentionally, and uh, claimed the lives of Dr. Goddard and his children. Okay. However, they searched the area where Camille's skull was found, you know, meticulously. The Navy's involved. They get, like, special boats and everything. Special skull-finding boats. Yeah. <laughs> they found a buttload more skulls, but no boats. <laughs> Weirdly enough, too, they found a boat made of skulls, but... <laughs> Um, so another period of silence. (laughs) (laughs) Just that kind of silence, huh? Yep. A long belch later, on February 11th, 2001, uh, the investigation takes on a new dimension when Dr. Goddard's business card is found by a walker on the beach at Chappelle, on the largest island of the, um, Ebi Hounds archipelago? (laughs) Oh, God. Sure. Off the coast of... Saint Jacques de la Mer, which is roughly halfway between Urque and Saint Malo. Oh god damn. Um <laughs> where any of these places are, so you can tell me I'm going you to make a map. To. I'm going to <laughs> okay. I'm going to punch up a map and everyone can laugh at how poor my pronunciation is. <laughs> Eleven days later, a bank card bearing the name of Yves Godard is found on the same beach by a resident. Two days later, walkers find a credit card on the same beach. After all of this shows up, investigators search the beach very thoroughly. Like, there's a lot of money to be found on this beach. Yeah. <laughs> we can scan this dead dude, um, <laughs> if he even is dead. Uh, but no traces of the Nick are found, hmm. and no further evidence of uh, Dr. Goddard. Uh, months later in the summer, on June 3rd, another credit card is found off the beach by a diver. So these events lead investigators to believe that Dr. Goddard stopped off at this beach to empty the contents of his wallet. However, it's determined following analysis that none of the cards have been in the water for long before being discovered. Hmm. And so they were very likely not discarded in September of the year The Matrix came out. (laughs) So more likely they were discarded by someone um, in early 2001. Wow. Possibly an accomplice who wanted to make it look like the deaths of Dr. Goddard and his children were accidental. Okay. But why, right? Yeah. For five more years, the case kind of like lies open but cold, you know? Mm-hmm. Then on September 13th, 2006, bones, mm-hmm. a femur and a tibia, are found on the seabed of Herds Deep, which is the deepest part of the English Channel. Mm. Um, 70 kilometers, or basically 43 and a half miles north of... Normandy. How did they find that? I don't really know. It doesn't where what where I got all this from didn't say either. That's it may nice. be in an article from the time, but it turns out they are Dr. Goddard's. Huh. Okay, so he is dead. He is dead. And in the deepest part of the channel too, which yeah. is kinda creepy to me. Huh. Um I wonder then if he so that's you know, going across the channel they found the that one boat on the other side of the channel. Right. Maybe he yeah, ripped it all apart. Like, took out the canvas, took off the inflation part, and then jumped off? For some reason? Middle, yeah. Maybe a suicide? After killing his kids and his wife. Just went nuts. Tried to go across the channel and jumped off in the middle. Right. Or maybe got swept off for some reason. Could be. So they searched the area again to try to find any trace of the sailing boat, which still is mysteriously gone. Search ends without success. While the confirmation of his death brought about sort of an end to a lot of the public interest in the case... The disappearance of Marie-France Godard, uh, whose body still has never been found. Wow. And the death of 
And we're talking all the way into 2017. Yeah. This is the year that Baby Driver came out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the The death of Dr. Goddard, his daughter, and the very likely death of Marius, his son, these, this all remains unsolved to this day. Wow. Uh, it's widely thought to be either a family drama followed by a cover-up suicide or an accident. And for these reasons, the uh, court file was not immediately closed. Lo and behold, on December 14th, 2008, basically a year and change later, investigators renew their efforts to figure out what happened when a plastic insurance card belonging to Yves Goddard is found in perfect condition on the beach at Chappelle. What? So more and more of his shit keeps showing up, but they can't find where it's coming from. That's really weird. And it you seems to be showing up like in recent state, you know? Yeah, when you mentioned the first time that they're finding the credit cards and stuff on the beach, I was thinking like, you know, it's plastic, it can float. So it'd be something that would like, you know those cases in the recent past when they're finding feet inside of shoes, washing up on lake shores oh, and stuff? Yeah. And people are like, what? Who's cutting off all these feet and stuff? Right. And then it's like, oh, actually it's just bodies in the lake that sink. And then when the um, decomposition gets to the point where the feet can come become detached, the shoes make them start floating. Right. And then they show up that way. So I was thinking, oh, maybe, you know, he's in the bottom. And then at some point, the plastic just cards like and stuff get loose. And, out. Yeah, but they haven't been there that long. So right. weird. It's very strange. Finally, well, I feel louder now talking into the mic like this. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, the mic is inside of my mouth. <laughs> um, after years of false or fruitless leads the examining magistrate ordered the case to be closed September 14th, 2012. He said, enough of this shit. They're done. 13 years and two weeks from the day Dr. Goddard set sail with his kids. Wow. The public prosecutor stated, the only hypothesis we can exclude is that the family's disappearance was a simple sailing accident. Right. But also that even if it is the most likely line of investigation, we cannot formally confirm either that Yves Goddard murdered his family. So the case is closed with no charges brought. Also, knowing for a fact that he's either dead or missing a leg. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, right? I guess finding no bones doesn't necessarily mean he's dead. Yeah, but most likely dead. Yeah. That means that you can't really charge a guy when he's dead. Um, and accordingly, two years ago, on December 7th, 2015, courts at the request of the public prosecutor made a declaration of absence judgment which is like a civil procedure equivalent to a death certificate, basically. Hmm. They're just like officially dead, even though they can't account for their bodies or anything. They're legally dead. So Marie France and Marius Goddard are now officially considered as deceased. Hmm. So what happened? Yeah. I think it's a really intriguing and creepy case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <why? laughs> In 2011, a book was published... Uh, by Eric Lamasson, which suggests that uh, financial reasons were behind the disappearance um, and may even include links to the mafia. Hmm. Uh, the book highlighted several murders of people affiliated to the French trade union in which Yves Goddard played a very active role as a member. So that's Interesting. one potential theory. I kind of like the crimes of passion angle that maybe Dr. Goddard just went off the handle for whatever reason. Yeah. I have a picture of him and his kids, too, in a ghoulish addition to this story, which okay. I'll upload just to sort of put a face on the man. Great. He looks a little freaky. He's got a, he's got a look to his eyes. I'll show you, actually. Um, yeah. And while I'm looking for this, I'll just ask the rhetorical questions. 
why the delayed appearance of so many personal effects if it was just this crime of passion, though, right? Yeah, if that happened, like, what else could cause unless... I can't think of any reason why his stuff would start showing up unless, like you said, there's an accomplice just kind of distributing them out. Then why would you divvy them out on the coastline unless you wanted them to be found like that? Yeah, like it doesn't make any... There's no logic to it. Like Trying to make it seem like an accident... After the first try, <laughs> they, oh, they can tell that it wasn't, this all happened recently, so they can tell Look that it's not. Look at this fucking guy. Ugh. Isn't that a creepy looking dude? Yeah, he's not great. And the kids. <laughs> and the kids in the background, it's so ghoulish. <laughs> it is. If you're trying to distribute the stuff and make it seem like it was an accident, the first time they did that, the authorities realized that, okay, this stuff was just put out there. It's not hasn't been out there since 1999, the year The Matrix was released. <laughs> um, right. So after that first attempt at failing, you'd think then they'd, the second attempt, they would realize, oh, that didn't work. Yeah, right. Unless they're just trying to make it as confusing as possible. This right. is like a, and then there were none situation where right. someone trying to make an unsolvable case. It's very strange. So many personal effects and yet no persons. Oh, my God. And what still baffles me, too, where the heck did the Nick go? Mm-hmm. How the heck do they not find it yet? Also, how did the rafts end up on either side of the channel? Yeah. How did that one raft end up so far west of where they were going to, well, purportedly go in the first place? With no one in it. No bodies found nearby. Right. And how could Godard have gotten around so much area in so little time? On October 14th of the year the Matrix came out, a.k.a. 1999, <laughs> in case anyone forgot, a hotel owner on the Isle of Man. This is hey, cool. Our stories hey, link hey. up. We seriously do sound like we planned these. This is crazy, dude. Yeah, we had no... T- People at home, we had no idea we were going to have the stories. Jake just edits out the sound of us Googling these stories as we're telling them. Yeah, we're making this up on the fly. Actually, what we do is we just tell crazy lies, and then it just <laughs> turns out they're all things that have been reported. <laughs> we're really good guessers. Yeah, we're super good guessers. <laughs> yeah, uh, this hotel owner on the Isle of Man claimed that, and again, this is just a month basically after shit really got real, Claims that Dr. Goddard and his children had stayed at his hotel between the 7th and the 14th of September. Hmm. And this was the first in a series of witness statements placing Yves Goddard and his children at various locations all around the world. Weird. So do you have the date of the waffle lady? <laughs> oh, man. So I, and I, I never forget the waffle lady. I think she was on the 3rd. The 3rd, okay. Uh, so in like two weeks' time, they could... Conceivably, yep, the 3rd of September. Okay, in two weeks' time, they could conceivably cross the channel, cross oh, England, and then get to the Isle of Man. It's not that hard to do, but still, it's just... That could also so account crazy. for why the boat was never found. I guess. maybe it's just maybe way the hell yeah, out there. maybe they went all the way around England. But then around why come back? Maybe he yeah. just was like, let's go on a bigger trip. Like, what if it was just like an innocent, horribly sad, like, tragedy? Although, it's just why so is the wife... Yeah, why is there so much blood everywhere on the wife? Yeah. So it's like maybe, I mean, maybe he killed the wife and then it's like, oh, let's go on a trip. It'll be fun. And then just totally out of his mind from having killed his wife and right. trying to have a normal. I don't know. Like, I don't believe any version of the story where he is in his right mind. Right. Even if he didn't mean to outright murder the kids, it seems like he's still responsible for their death in some way, if it was an accident or a murder. Right. I'm just really confused by one inflatable boat too far west bones somewhere on the coast of france bones yes bones kind of like not so very far from where they started and then more bones pretty far from where they started yeah 
uh, which were his in the which middle were his. in the middle of the channel. Right. Uh, another boat on the other side of the channel. The big boat nowhere to be found. Evidence of them being on the other side of England. Lots of blood at home and in the van, but no signs to this day of a body of the wife, or really the son for that matter. Hmm. It's kind of captivating. Yeah. Um, it's just weird enough to be, because we're not a true crime podcast. No, we're not. But this is a weird ass thing. This is crazy stuff, and we will veer into that all too popular if it's, topic of yeah, true crime, yeah. baby. <laughs> if it's weird, we're going to go for it. That's right. And to that end, sightings of Dr. Goddard were also reported on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland, in South Africa, what? in Miami, <laughs> and on Crete. Holy crap. I don't know why that's like, Crete was what got me, but... <laughs> yeah. Just like, I'll just, how could they have gotten to the Mediterranean? That's epic. But no, that's just so many different places. It's crazy. It's and so far apart. Here's Here's another angle for you maybe the leg bones they found Mm -hmm. were somehow misidentified i suppose i don't know i'm still so curious how they found them what were they doing in the bottom of the channel of herds deep sounds like some freaking uh lord of the rings shit (laughs) yeah (laughs) or like the challenger deep but smaller yeah james cameron was just like going is he practicing by going into a different lowest point in a different ocean (laughs) oh wait guys there's some bones down here should i bring them back up yeah go for it yeah go for it if you want oh damn they're leg bones of this crazy doctor well there you go that is some weird stuff some spooks for you so yeah this thanksgiving yeah happy thanksgiving everybody <laughs> happy thanksgiving everyone and uh don't yeah. go on a cruise don't go on a cruise with your creepy dad and don't talk to the mongoose in your wall right exactly unless, unless you have cookies and chocolate and bacon to give it right and he's super friendly yes and i guess uh yeah i guess we'll see you next week yeah and um do some more weird stuff some more weird things something uh creepy hopefully something crawly <laughs> <laughs> all of the above <laughs> And uh, <laughs> talk yeah. to you then. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye. The neck of that Irving come over. If I had a obel as he had it in with that furry snitch in the walls, no matter his heart, I'd give the base a bell tinker before I ran ass hen. <laughs>